What the Funk is back doing a mid to late January Friday recording with Trent Marks, the CEO, founder, president of Resource Energy Solutions out of Calgary. They are a newer Funk Futures client, um, a really exciting one too. We've seen some good opportunity and traction here in the States so far. So really honored to have Trent on. Uh, He was connected to us through uh, Petro Beacon, uh, which is uh, somewhat of a well-known entity with um, <clears throat> with Steve McLeod, who's a, a bit of a small-time legend, I would say, in oil and gas technology. I should have him on the podcast at some point, too. But uh, beautiful day. We kind of made it through our insanity of negative weather, and now I can look outside, see the snow melting, the sun's peeking out, so excited for a good weekend, watch some football maybe make some chili, spend some time with the family. And probably by the time this episode comes out, it'll be right around uh, NAEP. NAEP is, of course, a big conference in the oil and gas industry. I'll be there. Trent will be there. A bunch of people on my team will be there. Thousands of other people will be there, not connected to Funk Futures in any way, shape, or form. So I'm looking forward to that. So Trent, thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? Really good. Thanks, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I think you've got a, a lot to, to talk about and a lot we can dive into. So first things first, I ask this to all my guests, and you're no different. Um, who are you, Trent Marks? Who is Trent Marks? Well, Jeremy, I was uh, born and raised here in Calgary, Alberta, and spent uh, my, my up till 22 years old, I was here. Uh, had a great upbringing, childhood, loved the city. Uh, my um, my uh, recent, uh, last 17 years ago, was, was now a new company that I'm running, Resource Energy Solutions. And, uh, uh, but going back to, to my upbringing, I uh, always had a love of, of this city. A mm. uh, little bit... Uh, cold in the winters, but uh, nice, beautiful summers all the time. Yeah. And uh, my, my grandfather was actually born in Henrietta, Texas. So I have some, some, how do I say it? Um, some near and dear uh, affiliation with Texas. And so I spend a lot of time there now too. Yeah. You do spend a lot of time there, which, which makes sense for business and your kind of your continued expansion into the U S. So I'm going to reverse engineer the math a little bit. You were in Calgary till about age 22 formative memory of mine. Actually, I would have been eight or nine years old when the Olympics were in Calgary, the winter Olympics, which was, I'm sure a big deal up there. Um, and I just remember, you know, being in New Hampshire, New Hampshire's cold, Winter sports are a big deal. I grew up skiing, snowshoeing, sledding, come in, have hot chocolate, all that good stuff. So see, Calgary to me seemed like this this really neat place because you had the Olympics there. It was in Canada, but it was on the other side of the country. Were you in Calgary during the Olympics? I was. Uh, that was 1988, and it was a great year. I remember the Eddie the Eagle, if you remember the the – um, the ski jumper. Okay. And they actually did a movie on him later, but I did remember going out to one of the events at the Canada Olympic park, which is near here. And, uh, the city was just a buzz. It was just such a great time. I was, uh, geez, that was, I think I was 21 years old at the time. 
just a perfect age for people of all different countries and international descent to come to your city. What was it like? The energy must have been incredible. I mean, Calgary is not a huge city, right? So then all of a sudden you have the whole world focused on your city as the epicenter. Like, talk to me a little bit about that. What was 1988 like in, in Calgary with the Olympics, the build up to it? And then, of course, the games. Well, I think for me, I think it was one of the funnest times of my life. Everything from age of 16, 17, and up to 21 and 22, and it was really exciting. The city was a buzz, of course. There was, um, you know, this was always, this had been planned for many years. Yeah. So you can imagine, right? It's a, usually a 10-year plan ahead that you've been approved to, your city's going to host the Winter Olympics. And uh, all the facilities that were made around the city, um, just a transformation, um, ha- having access to um, the mountains that are so close, yeah. where the many of the events were held at uh, the likes of Lake Louise and and other facilities nearby, uh, was was just uh, incredible. The the I'm trying to remember where I was working at the time and and schooling, um, and you just you had to make time wherever you could to get out to these events and. And all of the uh, the, the numbers of uh, visitors that came to Calgary was really uh, really an experience. Probably the most people ever in Calgary at one time. Although Stampede gets kind of crazy up there too, so I don't know if that claim's accurate. But but Calgary's grown, I would guess, a lot since then. It, it to me, I always call it Canadian Denver, and Denver has grown by leaps and bounds. A much different city than than when I moved here twenty years ago. And certainly if you go back to the eighties, this was a cow town kind of then became a little more of like a, like a pot town. And now it's really sort of like, it feels to me like a big city here. Calgary to you, does it feel like a big city? Does it still sort of feel like a bit of a cow town? Like what would you say the vibe is there now? Um, we, in population, I think we're at 1.2 million or three. Uh, the the uh, country is 40 million right now, Canada. I'm surprised. Uh, I just remember 34 million and I'm like, what happened? Where did those extra 7 million people come from? Uh, it feels like, uh, to me, it hasn't really, it doesn't feel like it's grown that much bigger. It's spread out so much that you don't really see the growth a lot of times. Um, I have, uh, you know, I've lived in a number of different areas in Calgary and now I'm downtown close to where my my office is uh but the the what's what's interesting to see is the transformation that we're doing downtown when covid hit it, it's mm. just it was just a it was a ghost town yeah the uh you know you, you had people everyone was working from home um we had this massive uh one of the worst in i think in the cities in canada vacancy rates on commercial real estate downtown and so we put a lot of money into now converting this into these uh, residential units. So there's a lot of, uh, it, it's going to bring, I think, more vibrancy into the downtown core. Uh, it has always been sort of a, a very, and maybe other cities can relate to this as well. Sometimes your downtown is, is quite um, desolate at night. Yeah. You know, there's, there's not much going on. I kind of relate that to Houston. I don't yeah. really, Houston's... Sort of similar, I think, in a way. Yeah, like there's, it's just bigger, but there's so many um, people in the core in that in the downtown area, 
And when they go home at night, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Right. Except for Nape Week, then downtown's actually a little bit vibrant. But I agree. Houston's a place where you descend upon downtown to go into your office, to go to work, and then everybody flees to the suburbs, whatever, Sugarland, Katy, Woodlands, you know, uh, other places in, in Houston. So interesting parallel there. If you grow up in Calgary, oil and gas is around you. There's a couple hundred oil and gas companies up there, um, a lot of them pretty long lasting at this point. Um, what what kind of brought you into the oil and gas industry? Was it something that interested you because it was always around you? Did you just sort of end up in it? Um, tell me about your path to oil and gas. Well, I think uh, as a younger child growing up, I was always a bit of an entrepreneur and trying to do anything I could to, to make money. Started with a paper route and many other jobs. And then finally, after graduating from high school, you know, started took uh, mechanical engineering, uh, business administration. And then I wanted to, you know, we're, we're, we're in the energy hub here. Yeah. So I, I took a job as a jug hound. So on the seismic cruise, the guys that are out laying all the, the wires that connect the, the instrumentation sound that uh, pick up the sound when they do the seismic okay. back in the day, we're out there laying out all this cable behind the trucks. So that was my first experience in oil and gas and working in the energy. Now that was up in Northern Alberta. So it was really cold. So I got, yeah. I, you know, one of the things that uh, I realized quickly was if I want to climb the chain, I better work hard. So I always have that hard work ethic and have ever, ever since had that. And that comes from my, my parents and my grandparents with farming backgrounds and, and the, uh, so I started at the, uh, at that level and it wasn't very long before I was finally driving the truck. And so I could stay a little bit warmer. Nice. Nice. So you, you did actually work for the oil and gas company, oil and gas field services company. And then eventually you decided to get into the technology space. Talk to me about that transition. Cause I think it's something we've seen a lot of, you work in oil and gas, you work in the field, you say, hey, wait a second, we're doing a lot of things on paper. This doesn't make sense. The internet boom starts to happen and you decide to go out and launch this RES company. Talk to me about the, the path or the transition from working in the fields to actually building field software and then the invention of uh, RES. Sure. There was a bit of a time in between where I was 22 and by you know, the, the, I guess the blessings of God and, uh, things happen. I had a child, so nice. I decided I had to work and we, um, so I went to work for a company in British Columbia, working in lumber handling and optimization equipment manufacturing. Okay. We built sawmills and I took, uh, uh, another, it was about a three-year equivalent of education in procurement and supply chain management and slowly moved up to purchasing, buying, logistics. And I was always buying all the high tech, the software, the hardware, or anything related to automation and instrumentation. And that's where I kind of, I remember one of my early mentors said, just get really good at computers. And, and uh, you know, he, and, and you have to, and even today, and today we're seeing it even at younger ages. We've got our children at four or five years old that are starting to do coding. Uh, so I've always been around technology. And then after uh, there was a software lumber agreement 
had come into play with Canada and the USA. And so there was some job sharing. And I realized that the oil sands was going to take off here in Alberta and the, the whole energy sector. So I came back home to, to Alberta and then was working at, at, uh, for five years in purchasing supply chain management. I decided um, I wanted to move from procurement into sales. Mm. So worked with, uh, with a, uh, a great business coach and uh, ended up getting a job at selling drilling service rigs or Enzyme Rockwell division. Still around. Yeah, and uh, did great there working for uh, six months. I, uh, and then her, one of her other clients, uh, my business coach had these two gentlemen her, uh, that they were looking for someone to run the company and, and sell the product. So I thought, you know, this will be a good opportunity to get my reality MBA put on a different, put on many hats. Um, it did require a, a, a pay cut, mm. about 30%, but that was, uh, I felt that was going to be well worth it. And so it wasn't two years after I liked, you know, and I really had, um, was getting good reviews from the customers about the product and uh, the software technology. Uh, so it was about two years after that I bought the company. And I remember early days going back when I first, I was 22. Back then it was MS-DOS. And then, and then Windows 3.1 was, was coming into play. And that was in 1989, 1990. And that was such a game changer. Yeah. And, and then all of the, the office suites and I was, I was buying all of this. And I, I remember I said, you know, I really like that. I'd love to be able to build software, shrink wrap it. And then you can just, you know, um, sell lots of it. Yeah. At higher margins, so that's what really intrigued me and interested me in in uh, RES, and so we've now been building lots of uh, lots of great software over the last seventeen years, and really proud to say that I think we've got some of the best drilling and well information and well information management software in the world, and it's being you know uh, compared to the others, and uh, and we're seeing good results on on all fronts. I mean, we're, we're both biased when it comes to this. It's your company and I'm consulting for you, but, but I also like to take, uh, somewhat of a, uh, y- you know, uh, and kind of a middleman view of all these things and, and have knowledge of all of the various systems in the space. I like what you've built, particularly with the, the Wellman product, um, for kind of drilling completions, all the field data, and and you've built it in the cloud. I'm sure that was a relatively big transition for you to make, but you have other solutions as well. Um, talk to me about the evolution of the systems that you built and then other systems that you've added on to it um, in in Wellman. And did did you build this yourself or did you hire developers to build it? Like what what was that process like? Well, that is an interesting, it's a good question it's a, because it's a real interesting process when you look at the evolution of software development and, and um, where we started from, you know, 17, 18 years ago uh, with Wellman was the first, it's our flagship product. Pennzoil asked us to build some reports in the field that could, they could automate some of the data to bring it back to the office. Instead, back then that day, they were using bag phones to call in their morning reports. You can imagine back in that day, that's how they got the reports in by a phone call. What's happening out in the field, you know? And so 
so the, you know, we, we built up Wellman for drilling and completions and then later all the well intervention and, and abandonment modules. Uh, following that, we built all of the construction components around it. Uh, and then, and it's always a, it's always um, an evolution of the software development cycle because you've got to stay on top of technologies as they change and they're ever changing so quickly. Five years ago, we had to, we made a large investment to make our software web-based. And there's a difference between web and cloud-based software, right? Sure. We were, cloud can be an old traditional desktop app and you host it in the cloud so people can access it. Um, typically it's uh, uh, multi-tenant, Web-based is more where now it's accessibility on every, you know, any browser. Um, and, and that's really, that's really actually made, I think, of, you know, that's being one of our bigger transitions in staying on top. And who knows what's going to be next in the next five, 10 years, but there may be another, you know, you have to keep, you have to keep on top. So that's what we're doing. And so about 10, 11 years ago, we, we added on to it with a couple of other products, AFE Manager, that's authorization for expenditure, yep. because it starts at creating a budget. And then, you know, that's routed for review and approval internally, and some kind of smaller companies can just run that around the office with, with paper and get people's signatures. Or we, you like can to call that, we like to call that the sneaker net. The sneaker net, exactly. Yep. And then, uh, so we built that up and... We had an opportunity to build a regulator edition of the AFE management for Indonesia regulator. Wow. And so I remember doing lots of travel to Jakarta back in those days. And then uh, we have an AFE oil and gas edition version. Uh, and then we built about six years, seven years ago, we started building a, a regulatory compliance solution called Torque, Total Operations Risk and Control. And that's around well asset integrity, liability, environmental risk and compliance management. Uh, built on the Alberta Energy Regulator industry uh, standards and directives and best practices of what to do and when and what to report around all well operations. So that's our, our three core products. And then we also, 10 years ago, started to build out uh, drill AI to see ahead of the drill bit. Mm. So we've got a patented technology in Canada, US and Mexico to see ahead to do bitware prediction, stuck pipe conditions, and well below characteristics. And what's next? Well, more mobile and uh, making sure the data is accessible to others is, is some things in our roadmap. Uh, but as we look back in time at our company, we were in the cloud 15 years ago, mm. way before Amazon or Azure or any of this, this, these cloud providers came about. So we've always been on the leading edge. And, and even the drill AI, although we're, we still have some more work to get that to commercialization of that product, um, it, it seems like we've always trying to, we're, we're, we're always staying out really ahead of the time. And it was sometimes I felt that maybe it was too early for adoption. Yeah, that, that right there is, well, thank you for walking me through kind of the evolution of the products. Um, fairly robust suite, I would say, definitely built for the enterprise. Interesting point on having a product that's almost too early. Um, I see that today with some of the ESG sustainability related applications, but I've also seen the market start to come in the direction of those systems. If I think back to maybe 10, 11 years ago, 
one of the concepts that I was selling at the time with Seven Lakes was, um, you know, iPad-based mobile field data capture for pumpers. And that was relatively early and took companies time to adopt it. And now something like that is more of the standard. So it's, it's always a fine line, right? The way that somebody like you thinks, the way that a lot of founders and technology innovators think is push the envelope. But will the industry adopt the envelope that you are pushing and, and when, right? Because there is a such thing as, as being too early. And in conversations that I've had with lots of different operators today, as it relates to artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, the opinions are pretty split. I think everybody wants to embrace it, but there's also sort of the opinion that this is the, the worst that it's going to be right? The hallucinations and all these other things as it relates to AI and, and ML is only going to get better, right? In the same way that the internet was had some questions in the 90s, now you see the internet sort of hit its sort of peak as things are now. Everything's streaming, right? We're always on and connected, whether it's on our uh, you know, iPhones or, or Samsungs or whatever people use or computer. Here we are streaming over a cloud you know, podcasting version, the concept of podcasting wasn't even really a thing a long time ago. But but I'm curious to see where things do go in the artificial intelligence space and also how it starts to uh, impact what you're doing in terms of mm-hmm. the intelligence as it relates to the field tech. How do you view the sort of whole AI movement and everything that's really started to change uh, in that regard, over the past even just year or so, are you incorporating artificial intelligence? Is is that on the roadmap? And if you have any use cases, I'm curious to kind of let the audience hear what those might be. Yeah, absolutely. The AI movement and what we've seen in just the last three, four years has been phenomenal at the speed of which it's uh, it's coming around, and 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 people are starting to embrace it more. We use it wherever we can. Um, we use it in, um, in, within our products, um, how to enhance it, um, do more predictive ana- analytics, uh, AI, drill AI is, is all about algorithms and, you know, looking at 65 data points every second and predicting, processing that data to be able to, to see ahead of the bit. And so there's, there's, that's just one application of it. But as we're seeing today, chat gpt other other ways and uses of ai uh there's you know we're always looking uh, i have the fortune of being able to have traveled around the world so much and uh, i just the the amount of cities and countries and states and provinces that i've been to is just uh, uh you see the map of all oh, the pins of if you want to see a, you know locations of where yeah, i've been I love that. but but the the travel gives you that uh opportunity to also see what else is going on. Um, we're always keeping, one of the things that we, we value is, is innovation, uh, improvement, right? Always staying ahead of the curve um, at, you know, I think we spend more in R&D dollars than, than many service companies. And we invest in the products and staying on top of innovation because that's what we need to do to stay ahead. And our customers are going to want to see that. Um, like, like when we had to do a rewrite of the software six, six years ago, right? We realized if we're going to want to be able to use more technologies like AI, we have to change the, the underlying architecture. Sure. Right. 
the the database structures uh, to make sure that we've got that that structured database, and then you can pull the information easier, and then you can put all of this these new technologies to work. So, uh, what what we're seeing with these uh, the GPUs and the processors and yeah. everything that's happening around us, I'm just I it's incredible. Like when where does it start? It starts at uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, Bitcoin. That's what's driving driving all of these um, the G2, GPU processors, as well as now AI. So there's there's a couple different areas that really are are lending themselves to this growth, which will benefit us if used properly. That's the you know we, we have to be mm. careful about when you take AI to extremes uh, that are in negative impacts. That's not the way it's designed to be used. Unfortunately, that will be something that we may not ever be able to be avoid, but we need to be aware of it for sure. Interesting. So you talked about a few things there that I want to touch on. I think first and foremost, you, you've traveled a lot internationally, domestically, uh, North America, South America, you know, overseas for business. Talk to me a little bit about some of the differences or, or maybe it's similarities between doing business in Canada versus the U.S. versus Mexico versus South America versus, uh, you know, whatever, the Middle East or Australia or, or Asia or Europe. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of what you've learned in terms of, of what's different and, and ultimately what's the same. Mm-hmm. The, a lot of differences are uh, about our cultures, right? That's really the main one that you know, you've got to know the cultures of the countries or provinces or even states um, that you're going to be selling into or providing services to. Uh, Indonesia, for example, you know, very different culture. Uh, some of the tough, I thought, I thought I've met some tough negotiators in my life, but there, there are some pretty tough negotiators. Interesting. Uh, so you, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to be armed and ready and prepared to deal with that. And most of the similarities are really around the same thing applies. You know, you've got to build a relationship. You got to build that trust. Um, now, if you've got uh, a, a smaller tool, like an Apple phone, for example, it becomes a little easier. You don't have to have a big trust relationship to people just, they need sure. it, they want it, right? But when you're selling, uh, software solutions that, that impact uh, a company's uh, bottom line uh, operations. And they want to know that they can trust the buyer. Sure. And, you know, you have to still build that relationship just like with any partner that you have in life. And if you don't have trust with your partnership, then it doesn't really work out too well most yeah. of the time. That's what I've learned. <laughs> to say the least, to say yeah. the least. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I think the cultural differences, you even mentioned state to state. That's a thing too. The way people do business in, in Oklahoma is different than Colorado or, or California or Texas even. And certainly when you go to Alberta or South America overseas, it it is different. Of course, there are similarities, right? There There has to be value provided and there has to be some level of monetary exchange. Um, but the differences are real. And I think that's an important nuance, at least for me throughout my sales career and, and understanding some of those differences and, and treating each situation um, as its own individual entity. Um, I want to go, I want to go back in time a little bit. 
uh, with with you, right? So we talked a little bit about you know Calgary guy, um, spent some time in the field, spent some time in British Columbia. Um, you've got some experience now. You've run multiple companies. Like, what advice would you have for your younger self? Hmm. Well, I would uh, I would be advising to uh, keep keep working hard working smart, uh, surround yourself with, um, with, with good people, uh, mentors, always important. Yeah. Um, when you, when you see, uh, you know, don't maybe, maybe don't hesitate when you see really good opportunities and, and jump on them. People sometimes take too long to make a decision. So you want to, you want to make decisions quickly. Uh, and you don't, Keep educating. That's it, it's reading is important. Um, you know, I, I read a lot uh, on a daily basis. I, I haven't not you know I haven't been much of a, like a storybook uh, reader, but I love to read anything about business and growth and sure. in the areas of your expertise, right? Because if you if you're constantly educating yourself, uh, all the better, and and keeping up with the times on. Uh, technology is really important all around you. Uh, sometimes people just don't spend enough time on these areas. Um, and of course, and of course, building your, your relationship, your balance, your, you know, your, your personal life is just as important to feed that. Some of the best work you will do in your life will be from your home. Mm, especially now. I mean, well, right. <laughs> especially now, but, but you're right. Now, um, now it's given, but, but back in the day, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the amount of work I remember I did at home when I was, uh, buy, buying resource energy solutions, you know, it was about three months of work, uh, all from home in the evenings to, to structure yeah. the deal. And, um, you know, all of this takes, uh, uh, a good effort and, Nothing comes easy in life. Thank you for that answer. And, and, and I'm kind of curious too, since I'm, I'm a little bit earlier into my entrepreneurial journey, uh, you know, about, about three years into to Funk Futures and, and have some investments in some earlier stage technology companies that hopefully turn into something at some point. But a question I have for you and, and something I like to ask, long running entrepreneurs like yourself, how have you avoided burnout? I know this isn't something that I've sort of prepped you to ask, but you've run RES now for 18, 18, 19 years. Um, and it's, it still feels in some ways the energy that your team has like, like a startup. You still have a desire to expand into, uh, you know, a, additional markets, um, create new solutions. How have you done this for almost two decades and avoided burnout? Or have you had some, some, patches of that time where you did feel sort of burned out and how did you get out of it? I've been fortunate not to have any of these burnout patches. Uh, you know, once in a while you'll, you'll get, you know, you get tired. And so you'll take a vacation, you know, take yeah. a week off. Uh, I haven't taken a week off in a while, uh, <laughs> but, but the, uh, the, the key is really, um, always be growing. And if you're not growing, you're, you know, you're stagnant or you're dying. Yeah. And that that's and they have to and you have to be excited about the growth, um, and if you're creating that that buzz and that excitement, other people around you see it and feel it and follow it. 
so some of the things I do is uh, I've got to make sure I'm getting my eight hours of sleep. Yeah. You know, that's really important. I find that for myself and uh, a good rest is, is so good and healthy, you know, doing, keeping up with uh, my, my, um, oh, all sorts of uh, health uh, things that I input into my body supplements and, and, you know, I think are very important. Um, uh, a number of other um, powders that I put in a smoothie in the morning, you know, sure. it's a, just been a tradition for five, six, seven years now. And then getting out um, and for exercise, doing cardio and weights or whatever you can do to, to, to take this edge off, or the stress off sometimes. And then on the weekends, I, I've been fortunate that I have a um, tree farm in Sundry, so in the summer months, you know, I get out there on the weekends to look after this hobby farm, which is, I, you know, it, I've been so busy, it's been hard to try and sell the trees, but the trees I've planted, about 30,000 of them over six years, wow. 15, 16 years ago. And when you get out to the country and, and breathe the fresh air and, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. And right now in this time of the year, you know, this is why it's so great. I didn't realize how much fun sledding was. And so three years ago, I bought a sled and, and the, the snow, you know, where we are, everything west of us is crown land. And you could pretty much just snowmobile to Lake Louise if you had wow. a guide and, and could take that trail. Uh, so it's just great to get out from right from the cabin, launch on the snowmobile and, and the sled and off you go. Uh, so those are the, those, that's more exercise on the weekend. And that kind of takes away from the office stress. Cause yeah. if you're doing, if you're doing seven days a week on the computer, you will, you can burn out pretty quickly yeah, without, yeah. without that other, those rests that you need. Right. Yeah. I like how you tied sort of the, the physical component into, you know, avoiding mental burnout. I, I do believe that that's important and, there's nothing quite like getting out in the country, seeing, seeing the stars, you know, getting, getting some of the, that fresh air is, is super nice. Um, I'm fortunate to live kind of right on a Creek right behind me. And even in, in little like pockets of time during the day when, when I can just get a chance just to sit down and meditate by a Creek, right. With the water flowing it changes your whole mindset for the day or just going for a quick walk around the block. I don't do it right. enough, but I notice that when I do, I feel really good about it and, something and else know, that, yeah go ahead well i was gonna say you know what but that is all from too and somebody reminded me it's you're out there you're breathing more right people are you know someone said hey there's oxygen is free just keep breathing <laughs> that's that's all this that's what meditation and and, and yoga right yeah. breathing into the nose yeah you were gonna say <clears throat> out through the mouth to go back also to one of the things that, that in sort of the, the burnout part of the conversation that, that we were talking about, um, and, and advice to your younger self, you, you said something that really stood out to me. So I actually wanted to and, and created a website and had the idea for starting a fractional contract sales company as far back as 2017. You were hinting at when you see something and you have passion for it, you really just need to go for it. And what held me back... I just talked about this yesterday with my friends, Keith and, and Ian Myers of, of Mainline Ventures. They're now launching their own thing. And we talked very candidly around part of why I didn't start my company then was health insurance, right? It's something that down here for employees in the US, um, I was sort of afraid to not have some of the benefits, in particular health insurance with a young family. Oh, no, now I have to pay for that myself out of pocket. How do I do it? 
and I'm not the only one. I think a lot of people have avoided starting their own thing due to the safety of some of the benefits, especially health insurance that a full-time job can provide, right? So if I were to go back even just less than a decade to my younger self and say, you've got the idea, go for it. You'll figure out some of those ancillary things. I probably shouldn't have left, uh, shouldn't have not started, I probably should have started my own company earlier, but I let not having health insurance or having to figure out a different route, pay for it all out of pocket, which is not cheap down here from starting my own company. Um, and that to me is an important, I, like I look back and laugh at that now, like what, why would I do that? But on the flip side, I think I learned more about myself in those sort of last few jobs I had as a full-time resource that my heart and my passion was really starting to be uh, helping earlier stage companies um, and bringing different types of value to various different operators and, and oil and gas companies. So um, that sort of struck a chord with me, Trent. I, I appreciate that. It, it And it, it is, it's so true. It's difficult because unless someone's throwing a bunch of money at you, you you've got, you know, you've got, I got to deal with the security issue. Um, I'm, I'm in fear, right. Of, of taking the risk. Uh, so, you know, you have to just kind of take, take the, the, the plunge and know that, Hey, what's the worst that can happen. Right. Yeah. You just go back and get a job. I mean, to me, that's sort mm -hmm. of like, it, it took me enough time to rationalize, like <clears throat> what is failure? Like even still say my company goes belly up, right. The, the worst case scenario. Like, I don't care about how people view me in terms of being a success or a failure. To me, that's all intrinsically motivated. The worst thing that would happen is that I would get a job. That's okay. For 17 years of my career, I worked a job and was totally happy about that. So, you know, it's, it's like the, the downside is really not that bad if somebody wants to go out and go for it. Just make sure you have kind of a laser target in terms of what you want to achieve in, in running your own business. Um, also kind of curious to bring it back to RES. You've been running this thing for a while, right? You're expanding, you're growing, the technology is rocking, you're getting a lot of good feedback from oil and gas companies, from drillers domestically, internationally, so on and so forth. Do you have time to think about what this company looks like in four or five years? And if so, what do you think it looks like? Hmm. I'm always uh, planning ahead to, to grow the company. Uh, for sure, I, I see that uh, we're going to be in, in more countries in four or five years, uh, more, more states, the, uh, more products of ours that will, will have more traction in different areas and continuing to grow, uh, staying on top of new innovative ideas. Uh, some of our core products are now expanding into different areas like, um, renewables, for example, mm, right? we can, okay. as people don't maybe recognize that our software can be applied to anything, any type of a project, uh, wind farm, solar, geothermal, um, any construction projects, right? Anytime you want to manage daily costs and activities, we have a new uh, suite of products. And so we're, you know, we're going to be continuing to evolve that and grow that um, to, to have just more smiles on our, our customers' faces. And, and, and having to make, and one of the things we must always be mindful of is providing great service. Because if you can provide a good level of service, you'll always be there at the end of the day. People can forgive a small, you know, there's maybe there's a bug in the software, right? There's, there's always, software sure. always has 
some issues from time to time as things as things come up. But that's one of the most important things that we're going to be always continuing to focus on. And we're really proud to have been doing so ever since day one. We're always providing a high level of service. We're always there for our customers 24-7, 365 days a year. Even on even on Christmas or Easter even or on- New Year's or what you name it. <laughs> that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, another question that I have, again, about sort of some of your, your uh, entrepreneurial ventures and and management in particular is how, how do you delegate? You know, like I, I find that to be extremely challenging for me. I'm really fortunate to have Max. You, you've gotten to know Max and some of my other guys and, and it takes time, right? To, this is your baby. You know, RES is your baby. Funk Futures is, is my baby. Um, I'm, I want to see this thing through. I want to see it be a success. I'll delegate, but I still want to keep close eyes on everything. Like, how have you been able to successfully delegate? Because I know some of the guys on your team have been there for 15 years. So obviously, you can't be micromanaging them too much. Like, what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs? Maybe I'm just selfishly asking this for myself. But, but how, how would you recommend delegation? And, and what does that look like to you? And how have you been able to do more of it to, to have a long-lasting company? If you, uh, if you don't delegate you won't grow because you're going to be doing it all yourself. So, you know, you have to understand that, yes, we have to do that. Now, how do we do it to make sure that we are still uh, getting the information we want is we have to design and make sure that we have in place the metrics of the reporting that we want to have. Yeah. And then you have your, so, you know, so you make sure you've got that all, you know, that process and, and that, that reporting documented on what needs to be done. This is the role. I want you to do it. Like we've got all sorts of procedures in running our company, you know, different manuals for operations for um, you name it. There's a process behind it, um, even lead conversion process, right? How to, how to do that. So that as you grow a new, add a new salesperson, you're adding a new um, operations manager or, or any role, you've got everything documented. So then you, you can easily be on top of, that reporting and then you just are you have them and you have a maybe it's a weekly or bi-weekly or every two weeks a meeting or whatever you're you know to get that reporting back and 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 that you're measuring that against the metrics that are required for those for any role that you're going to delegate to because if you're not measuring those metrics then you can't keep an eye on on you know that that's fundamental if you want to be able to keep an eye on the um the advancements and progress forward on any any particular task or um, or work that's required. Yeah, I, I think taking a quantitative approach is good, and especially for you guys, it's a bit of own you know the proverbial eating your own dog food. You're inputting companies are inputting lots of data into your system. It would be foolish to not be data driven internally in terms of how you manage processes and and people. Um, no, this is this is fun. I I, I enjoy. Um, kind of hearing your perspective and especially somebody who's been at the entrepreneur game in technology for 20 plus years, you've seen things change a lot. (laughs) Certainly a lot of companies come, a lot of companies go, some companies get acquired, some companies, you know, go under and, and, you know, kudos to you for being able to have a a long lasting successful company that, that has some real innovation to it um, that I think will, will start to continue to spread. Um, in, in various different places well outside of, of 
Alberta. Um, tell me, Trent, where can people find you? Where can they find your company, you know, social media, websites, all those sorts of things? Yeah, we're on uh, most of the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Resource Energy Solutions, Dot com is the company address that, of course, our website um, and uh, any other, what else are we, whatever we got. Uh, we, we just started to m- look at Twitter to see if we want to. <laughs> if there's any value there. Or X, if there's any value there. Uh, and so that's, that's where you could, you can find us. And we're, you know, we're, you know, I'm, I'm spending um now half my time in houston and and half the time or or maybe it's four months in houston and six months in calgary and two months in the air and so that's (laughs) that's where that's where i am most of the time yeah that's that's relatable and And one uh, sorry go ahead well i was just going to mention back to what you talked about delegation is what's really important to you have to be mindful of is is that you're not like demanding things from people that you're mm. you're leading and not being a boss right here you know it's about it's about us growing because there's a difference between being a leader and being a boss and uh, and those are those are important uh, factors to can always be mindful of that you're treating people well like you want to be treated yeah i mean the the golden rule applies in business as as much as anywhere else i, I was actually talking to a friend about this recently Th- this has been was super startling for me and in, and in some ways still is like I was really fortunate especially in high school and then college to have um, you know in playing sports or, or being in various different positions of leadership to have mentors to have captains of sports teams to have coaches to have fraternity brothers um, who were just unbelievable leaders and and taught me a lot and were mentors and frankly when I got out into the working world I was shocked by how a lot of managers managed. Um, like you said, much more boss, far less leader. And, and to me, it's, in some ways, it's, it's unbelievable. Like if you, if you have a good boss, good manager, whatever you want to call it, that can oftentimes be more important than making another 20, 30% in terms of the dollars that come in each year to you, right? People really care about how they're treated. And I think each generation um, values... <clears throat> the way that they are treated even more, which I think is a positive thing, but it really stood out to me where it's like, man, how did you get into this position, especially in sales? Because what can happen in sales is the best salesperson then gets promoted to be the person that runs the sales team, but they might not have any management or leadership skills. They might not be able to impart what they do well. They're just good at selling a product. So then I'd start to see like, oh, that's, that's interesting. It's like making your, your quarterback, the, the head coach, but the quarterback doesn't communicate well with the rest of the team. So um, some parallels with sports, but, but something that really stood out to me when I got out in the business world, I'm like, man, where were all these, where are all these amazing leaders that I spent time with in, in my, my youth and into my twenties? They're not where I'm working. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of good leaders in sports. It's really, yeah, it's, uh, it's phenomenal, but we learn from them too, through, as we grow up. So getting, you know, that's why I'm getting involved in team sports is always, I think it's a, it's a great experience. I totally agree. It's, it's, and I think with, with sales, especially there's a lot of parallels with just in terms of being a team player, you know, being competitive um, and sharing credit, right? The best leaders always do that. 
You know, you see Tom, Tom Brady behind me. You'd never hear him speak in terms of I, he always spoke in terms of we. Um, and I think there's a lot of important lessons there. Final note I wanted to make Trent, and this has just always sort of been fascinating to me because I started my company in the pandemic. There's people like you who I've done business with now. You, we've been doing business for a couple, three months and we've never met in person, you know, and there are some people that I've done business with for a couple of years that I've never actually met in person. So I just want to say, I'm looking forward to actually meeting you in the flesh in person in Houston. When we go down there for Nape, it should be a, a good show, but to tie it all together, um, that should be a good time. And I do look forward to actually getting face to face with you since, you know, we're actually business partners. So likewise, likewise, it's overdue. I appreciate yeah. it. Trent mm-hmm. Marks, ladies and gentlemen, X marks the spot, M A R X. Um, thanks for coming on today, Trent resource, energy doing some really big things in the drilling completion space and hope to see y'all at Nate.